Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. This podcast is funded by listeners like you through Patreon. We want to thank all of our donors. We would not be able to produce this podcast or maintain the free resources like the blog, the videos, the downloadable posters on our website without you. So if you can, please consider supporting us at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists. We post videos each month for those who donate at least $5 or more. Hi, and welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast. I'm Dr. Althea Need Kaminsky, and today I'm joined by Dr. Alexander Poole, Professor of English and um, Head of the Department of Modern Languages at Western Kentucky University. And I have him on today to talk about his new book, Learning a Foreign Language, Understanding the Fundamentals of Linguistics. Um, so thank you, first of all, for joining us. And uh, the first question, I guess... I wanted to ask to, to launch us in is uh, your new book uh, focuses on offering practical advice for language learners. What motivated you to write this book? Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. I appreciate it. Um, I, you know, one of the things which has always been fascinating to me is that um, in the United States, we have a big fear of languages and that occurs during childhood, but it also occurs during adulthood. During childhood, uh, what we do is we've had uh, millions upon millions of children who enter American schools, and we actually fear their language. We fear that they speak another language. And so um, it's been a policy of the United States, um, implicitly and explicitly, uh, to make those kids transition to English as quickly as possible with little thought about preserving their first language. And a lot of um, incorrect and irrational fears around um, bilingualism really stir, really occur um, in American culture. And so a lot of people are scared that, oh, if a child knows more than one language, they will somehow be confused. Or if the child speaks another language, uh, they uh, will not be a patriotic American and so forth. Um, another fear that we have comes in a different way, comes during adulthood. It is very strange that while we don't, as a culture, uh, value and appreciate uh, the languages which kids bring to schools, as uh, adults, particularly educated adults, we really regret not knowing another language. And when, especially an American or a British person or anyone from the Anglosphere, from the English-speaking world, knows another language, it's kind of like magic to us. Um, And but we feel ourselves like, ah, oh, that's too difficult. I can't do that. Well, I wanted to show people that both of those fears, the fear of the child uh, not knowing English, that their, their bilingualism, and the fact that as an adult, that you get scared of not knowing or not being you know, good enough to learn another language, that both of those fears are, are incorrect. Um, so that's a, a big reason. Another reason has to do with our lack of fundamental knowledge of linguistics in American society. And so uh, even amongst educated people, there are so many myths about language proficiency um, that I wanted to clear those up for people. So for example, a lot of individuals will say, well, uh, this immigrant or that immigrant 
speaks English very well, but they still have a heavy accent and they're not really doing much to get rid of that accent. Well, as we know from linguistic research, that after adolescence, you can have great language proficiency in another language, but you probably will never sound like a native speaker. That accent will probably be there to stay. Um, that was great. Thank you. Uh, who was this book written for? Who do you um, imagine picking up the this book? You mentioned both um, learners of a second language and in childhood children learning languages, but also um, adults. So did you write this more for one perspective versus the other? Well, it really is written for the monolingual American who is interested in language learning. That is someone who does not speak another language already. Um, or it could be for other monolingual English speakers from the rest of the world. Because a lot of this knowledge, you know, when people become bilingual or trilingual, a lot of these things are sort of intuitive. Um, They don't fear learning a second language. They know how long it takes. Uh, They understand that you know some parts of the language, but you don't know everything. And so people who are interested in this process can be uh, very, you know, motivated high school students, uh, people in college who want to study a foreign language, those who want to learn a foreign language on their own who are adults. Um, And I I didn't write it. I I included research in there and it's based upon research, but I specifically made it so it is not really um, too thick on the research. So it doesn't use as many terms or if it does, um, it, it, you know, I explain what those terms are. And it really worries me when I meet, and this is one of the audiences I, you know, within that monolingual um, group that I really worry about are those people who come to me and they're very enthusiastic initially about learning a language. And I really worry about them because I think, ah, this person will probably gas out very quickly. And the reason they'll probably gas out rather quickly is because they use very counterproductive practices. So for example, a lot of them will say, well, you know, I really want to study Chinese. I want to go to China and live. And so what I've been doing is learning how to read Chinese and memorizing lists of vocabulary. Now, memorizing lists of vocabulary is something we did, at least I did, is you know, in elementary school for English. I mean, it's something people might do in foreign language classes, uh, but it's pretty exhausting. And it's pretty boring after a while, and it's pretty difficult. And so it's it's hard to see motivation being sustained when you're engaging in practices like that. And it's actually not the most productive way or even very productive way at all of learning vocabulary. Another one is that a lot of language learners who are monolinguals will turn into, uh, I call them amateur linguists. Um, Because as linguists, we want to know why things are the way they are. So a lot of those people who come to me will say, well, I'm studying the grammar of Spanish, for example, and I want to know why is it that in English we don't have reflexive verbs, but in Spanish they do. So, for example, they'll say, um, in, in English you will say, I dropped the ball, but in Spanish it would be something like, the ball was dropped from me. And I'll tell them, look, I don't know exactly what the reason is for that, but you don't need to know that. You're wasting your time trying to engage in linguistic analysis. That is something that if you want to do that, you get a PhD in linguistics. But ultimately, you just have to accept that this is the way that the language works and move on. It's not going to help you. 
So there are lots of people who have studied four or five languages, have gained very little proficiency in any of them, but can tell you all about their grammar. And I think, you know, I don't think that that's a great goal to have unless you want to do something like I do. Right. So you're you're focusing more on like effective language learning. If you want to learn a language so that you can speak it um, and, and use it relatively uh, qu- quickly compared to these other methods, here's some some tips based on the research. Versus, um, here's a long treatise on the linguistics behind um, right c- certain grammars of certain languages. Right, and and I think that that's something natural because of, there's two reasons that people might do this. Number one is that they use a learn approach that they would use for other academic disciplines. So in academic, other academic disciplines, you're supposed to say, well, what's the reason? What are the reasons for this? What are the, what are the bases for making these decisions? Whereas in language learning, like, you know, if you really want to be a practical language learner, that's really not the focus. Why? I don't know why in all these languages, but I know this is the way that you say it. Um, native speakers actually function this way. Every native speaker of a language is 100% proficient in their language, and most of them can tell you absolutely nothing factual about that language. So you don't need to, to, to go about to, to do these sorts of things. Oh, another reason for that is a lot of people who want to learn a language tend to be quite intellectual. And so they want to approach things in an intellectual fashion, and it looks kind of cool if you do that. But ultimately, it's not the best way of learning. Um, so one thing before we go on, just to make sure um, we've clarified our terms for our listeners. So we've used the term monolingual and bilingual mm-hmm. and even trilingual a lot. So I want to uh, clarify that monolingual uh, means speaking one language right? versus bilingual, which would be two, or trilingual. Um, and you can have people who are obviously multilingual, right, right who speak multiple languages. Um, so with that in mind, what are some of the barriers that monolinguals run into when learning a second language? And you've already touched on a few, some of it being maybe ineffective strategies like trying to memorize lists of words. Um, but I wonder if there were any other types of barriers that you see people frequently running into when they're trying to pick up another language? Well, one of the early chapters that I wrote in this book had to do with motivation. And motivation is a real problem for monolinguals. Uh, In the United States, I will talk to people who have just uh, gotten back from a trip to Germany or to the Czech Republic, and maybe they fell in love with the culture or they fell in love with a, you know, they met somebody there and they want to learn that language, and they're very energetic. Uh, But after initial that initial burst of um, enthusiasm, they will soon find out that they have very few people to to talk to. And when you don't have a lot of people to use the language with, you've really got to work hard at sustaining motivation. It's very difficult to do that. Now, the obvious exception for that would be Spanish. And Spanish, there's just loads, there are just loads of resources available. Even in smaller communities, there are a lot of Spanish speakers, a lot of newspapers and radio stations and ways you can use the language. It's opposed to for some other languages, non-European languages, a lot of Asian languages, in major cities, there'd be opportunities to use them, to use those languages. But for, for most of us, it's, you know, if it's not Spanish, it's going to be pretty hard to find someone to talk to. And most people who are from those first language groups don't appreciate being treated like a, you know, like a a walking dictionary. Um, Another issue has to do with incorrect beliefs. And so it's interesting that you mentioned 
uh, monolingual, bilingual, and multilingual. I think a lot of people have the assumption that being bilingual, multilingual means you know the languages equally well. And that's actually not true. Uh, most people who are bilingual or multilingual have varying degrees of proficiency in those languages. Um, so uh, what my, my late uh, mentor, he was a director of my PhD dissertation at Oklahoma State University, Dr. Robbie Shorey, uh, used to tell me that um, he would speak to his wife in Marathi, which is an Indian language. But uh, if it had to do with taxes, he, they would speak in English. When he was growing up, he learned Sanskrit for religious purposes, but he couldn't speak a word of it, even though he could read it. Uh, he learned Hindi enough to get by in school and watch movies. And he learned enough Gujarati, which is another Indian language, um, to negotiate with uh, merchants on the street. But of course, he couldn't read or write um, Gujarati and, you know, his Hindi kind of atrophied after a while because he didn't use it. So he didn't have perfect proficiency in all those languages. And really, very, very few people do. Um, another is another incorrect belief that you know, was related to that has to do with errors. So a lot of individuals will get really fixed on errors and say, if I make a mistake, if I mess up, that house, that somehow means that I'm not studying hard enough or that I'm not good at this. And errors are actually natural. They're very natural. You actually have to go through errors in order to gain proficiency in the language. And even years after um, you're learning English or another language and having very high proficiency, you're still going to have them. They're just going to be there. And so the focus should be on communication. And the last one I think is, um, people who haven't learned the language have the assumption that there's an end point. So they will think, well, you know, I'm going to learn, after I learn Spanish, I'll learn French, and then I'll go on to learn German. You never really get there in any of those languages. Um, so think about people who have been in this country for 50 years, and they're always learning new things. My wife uh, constantly, my wife is from Colombia. Her first language is Spanish. She has a master's degree in applied linguistics from an American university, and she'll still ask me about specific vocabulary words, about grammar. So one of the things which still gives her some problems has to do with um, particles. And so it, they look like prepositions, but if you were to use them with a verb, they would mean something very different. So uh, to go off, for example. So I could say, he went off on me, which means he started yelling at me. Or he went off the rails, which means he kind of went crazy or the alarm went off. And my wife will say, why does this have so many, you know, this construction have so many meanings? Um, and why is it that the alarm went off? It should go on. So that, we have to keep that in mind. You're never gonna get to that stage where you think, ah, oh, I've learned it, I'm done. And if you know that, you'll have more patience with yourself. Right, well, and I, I feel like I'm learning new things about the English language all the time. And I'm, um, I hope, a very pro proficient speaker, right? It's my right. Uh, my native language, and I've been speaking it for, for quite some time. So, right, with, with that in mind, it does seem kind of silly to think that, you know, that there's there's an end point, right? I, I, I'm never going to know every single thing there is to know about the English language. So, it does seem kind of naive to think that, like you said, I can just, like, tick off French and then go on to Spanish next, right? As if it's some easy checklist because languages are 
living, breathing things. And there are things, the language changes, uh, right? There's, we're kind of talking about, I, I feel like we're talking about more formal languages, but if we think about like slang in different languages, right? Um, I, I kind of, I occasionally have to ask my students and be like, what what did you just say? <laughs> like right. they'll use a new turn of phrase or something that I maybe am not as familiar with. Um, so even in my own native language, I'm still constantly learning and making mistakes too. Oh yes. And, and, and there's something, you know, odd that we recognize this in children. We recognize that every child, when they're learning their first language or, you know, if they're bilingual, they're going to make mistakes. They're going to make errors. Um, so my mother has a very large family and she was one of the oldest siblings. And one of my uncles, when he was a little boy, he used to say, Marsha, and that's my mother's name, Marsha, fray me, but don't fall me down, which meant Marsha, pick me up, but don't drop me. And we know that kids say those to us, what seems like nonsensical words and constructions all of the time. Um, and they have to go through that you know, that those stages in order to become fluent speakers of the language. But we seem to think, well, adults don't need to do that. They actually do need to do a lot of those things. I mean, they'll, they'll sound different, of course, uh, but they do make a lot of mistakes. And even some of these uh, constructions that um, especially children can come up with are, are terribly fascinating. So um, our, we have two daughters and uh, my older daughter, who's now 14, I always remind her of this. Uh, when we you know, talk about language learning, that they grew up, or they, that we speak both English and Spanish in the house. And I remember one time when she was about three, I went to the gas station and she was in the back seat and she said, Daddy, are you poniendo, poniendo salsa in the car again? And so that is a mixed English and Spanish construction. And she used, Daddy, are you in English poniendo pudding salsa? sauce in the car again. And I thought that is amazing. I mean, that just shows you how dynamic the brain is and how for her, there was no real separation between the languages. She was just using the words that were available to her. And she was using, and this is something that people do in second languages as well, use the closest approximation to the target word. So she didn't know what gasoline was, but she knew that it was something wet because she could hear it. Um, so she used the word salsa, right? Sauce. And I thought that's, that's, that's for, for a linguist, that's like nerd central. You're like, I love this stuff. That's great. Um, so one of the things we've been kind of talking about here has been how, how rich language is and how uh, there are, like you said, all these different errors that you, you have to go through in order to learn a language. How do how do researchers study that? How do researchers study language learning? Um, I, I was hoping you could maybe talk about um, a, a study that you think is particularly useful or, or interesting when you're talking about um, how we learn languages. I mean, this is one of the interesting, I mean, the interesting problems about linguistics, which I think is an interesting problem about a lot of social sciences, is that um, we use a lot of scientific methods, even though it's 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 much harder. I think to um, study these things uh, than it is uh, to study maybe natural sciences because the variables are so dynamic and um, it's very difficult. It, 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 it's very difficult to, to pin down one singular cause for things, which I think um, a lot of people try to strive for. And there's always exceptions and so forth. But 
in general, we would use kind of standard social science methodology. So a lot of the research is quantitative in nature. So looking to make generalizations, uh, but also using typically statistical methods of inquiry. Uh, one of the big areas in linguistics or second language studies has to do with um, survey research. And so, of course, surveys have been around for a long time, but in the 1980s and 90s, scholars like Rebecca Oxford uh, launched extensive work, you know, designed extensive surveys, um, really good surveys into the learning strategies that people um, use when trying to learn a foreign language or English. So she was looking at uh, what are the effective or emotional strategies that people use at different proficiency levels. What are the metacognitive strategies people use? So for example, how do they plan um, and select materials to study from? What are some of the communication strategies they would use to make themselves understood to a native speaker? So for example, if there's a communication breakdown, what is it they typically do? And looking at you know not only different levels of proficiency, but educational levels, gender, um, first language, um, uh, in addition to, you know, maybe uh, setting, so formal versus informal setting. Another type of uh, research is the more the qualitative type of uh, studies. So these would be either case studies or ethnographies where researchers look at a small group of people or maybe just one individual um, and they look at for a specific aspect, look at a specific aspect of learning for them. So somebody might say, okay, I, I want to follow around a group of uh, uh, American foreign exchange students in France. And I want to see, let's say five of them and look at the communication, the, strat the strategies they use when there's a communication breakdown with the native speaker of French. And so they look, you know, maybe over a semester, they follow those students around, um, take field notes, uh, ask the students for the reflections. There was actually a great study in the late 1970s done by Richard Schmidt, University of Hawaii, um, about a uh, one Costa Rican um, migrant worker named Alberto. And uh, he just looked at, you know, Alberto's social and st social socialization and his emotional state. And he looked at how that correlated to um, the rate and route of his language acquisition. So these can be very large studies. It doesn't mean they're small, um, but they usually take place over a long period of time. One of the really interesting studies that, you know, that's more recent that I found fascinating, fascinating was carried out by Stephen Krashen. Stephen Krashen is a very well-known linguist. He is Emeritus Professor of Linguistics and Education at the University of Southern California. And he looked at a um, Mexican uh, restaurant worker named uh, Armando. So Armando had been living in Los Angeles for about 15 years. And during that time, uh, he'd worked in an Israeli restaurant. So his English was not really that good. However, his Hebrew was excellent. And in fact, they had a panel of native speakers of Hebrew judge his Hebrew based upon recordings and some thought that he was a native speaker of Hebrew. Some thought that he uh, had come there as a small child from another country like Ethiopia. Um, well, what is interesting is that Armando didn't read and write Hebrew. Armando didn't take any formal classes. But what Armando did 
was that um, he had highly contextualized opportunities to hear the language. And so Armando uh, worked closely with the family. He had a lot of routines in there, which were, uh, you know, which showed him how the language worked. And for a long time, he didn't really speak that much, but his speech eventually emerged because of the highly contextualized nature um, of his job. And so Krashen uses this as an example of the power of what he calls comprehensible input. And that is, if you understand the context in which something is occurring, it is very, it is not easy, but it is likely that you will acquire the grammar and the vocabulary that go along with um, the language. So, for example, um, it would be much easier for me to learn uh, French by watching the French Open um, in French uh, than it would be for me to watch soccer in French. Why? Because I understand the rules of, of tennis. I understand tennis very well. And so you pick up on little, little bits and pieces. You'll know what's happening during this part of the game or that part of the game. Whereas in, in soccer, it just sounds like, you know, nothing. I, I don't know the rules. I don't know what the announcer might be saying. So that's very powerful. And it's a great study. It's very small. Uh, but it, it exemplifies um, a key principle in language acquisition research. And this kind of uh, leads to, to the last question I want to ask you, which is why is learning a language much more than just learning grammar or vocabulary? And I think we kind of uh, kind of touched on that a little bit with that last study, right? So why, and you mentioned at the beginning that maybe one of the common mistakes you see is people think that learning a language is maybe just memorizing a list of words. Um, so uh, why is it more than that? Why should you be maybe changing your approach if that's what you're doing? Well, it's interesting you ask that question because I have a friend who is a neuroscientist and um, sometimes he'll ask me and he wants to do, you know, map the brain and he's very interested in such things. And sometimes we'll talk about things like computer voice recognition and automatic translation. And I always tell him that I'm very cynical about though about the, those ever being very accurate uh, be, for the simple reason that computers really struggle to recognize context and intentions right what is the context and what are the speaker's intentions and so um, for example uh, I can learn the utterance uh, oh shut up and those can mean completely different things based upon the context so uh, it can be insulting or it can be comforting. So if I were to hear, for example, someone ranting on the subway and I got frustrated, I might just say, oh, shut up, you know, leave everybody alone. We're trying to you know, sleep here or concentrate. We don't want to hear this on a ride to work. But if a friend uh, you know, fishes for compliments, you know, when people do that and they say something like, oh, I'm so ugly, and you say, oh, shut up, you're beautiful. What we're doing there is we're trying to make them feel better. So we understand this in the first language, but it's absolutely true in the second language as well. Uh, so, for example, in Spanish, you really don't ever say such things unless you have really something harsh to say. So I would never say in a, even a complimentary way, oh, cajete, you know, at least in my wife's dialect, that's never something that you can say and, you know, it'd be okay. Or, oh, don't be silly or don't be stupid. You might have the grammar of those things correct, but in the context of Colombian Spanish from Bogota, those are big no-nos. You will not have a successful 
communicate. You won't have successful relationships if you say such things, even though your grammar is okay. And even though that's perfectly okay to say in English in many contexts. Right. So culture is a huge part. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of people think that um, you, you can just translate what you want to say in English or another language into the target language. It's actually not true. Would you even say such a thing? So, for example, um, in English, we know it's big time offensive to say, oh, um, you've gained weight. But whereas in other languages, it's not offensive at all. So it's if you land at the airport in Bogota and your father-in-law says, oh, you know, you're kind of bald now. He's not saying it to be offensive, but he's just making a remark. Whereas in English, that would be extremely, extremely bad. Um, and, you know, so there's all those types of things exist across cultures. Well, thank you so much uh, for for coming on the podcast. I want to remind our listeners again that your new book, Learning a Foreign Language, Understanding the Fundamentals of Linguistics, is, um, is it out now or is it out soon? It's out right now. Excellent. So people can go pick up a copy. All right. Yes. At Amazon or uh, Roman and Littlefield, you can find it there or Barnes and Noble or anywhere where fine books are sold. <laughs> Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much. Thank you. This episode is funded by listeners like you. To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists.